as we've been working through this series, this is the last in the uh, <clears throat> series that we've entitled Necessary Conversations. Uh, we want to try to provide biblical answers to some contemporary issues. And as I'm coming to the pulpit this morning, I was sitting there as, as Tim was talking, there's like five or six others that I could think of that we could probably have done messages on. I think the thing that the three of us want you to know is this, that there are biblical answers to contemporary issues, that, that the word is it's sufficient. It's sufficient to deal with any struggle or any problem that you will ever endure. It, it's eternal. It's, it's not just for 2,000 years ago. You know, the Bible was written maybe by 40 authors, three different languages, maybe 1,500 years. But the reality is, is that that word endures forever. And so, so God's word is sufficient. God's word is eternal. God's word is authoritative. We believe that it is the only faith, a rule for our faith and conduct. So, so as we look to the Word, it, it teaches us, you know, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 is a verse that probably many of you know, and it says what? That, that all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God, and it is profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, and so it says it's, it's good for doctrine. It means it teaches us truth. It, it is helpful for rebuke, as we were saying this earlier this morning, that, that as you go to the Word, it exposes us in Hebrews. It says that it, the Word is so sharp, it goes even down to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It cuts us. But, but it is a healing type of cutting. It's a cutting that goes down and is not destructive, but it is constructive. It wants to produce something in your life. It is for doctrine, teaching truth. It is for uh, rebuke, telling us where we're wrong. It is for correction. It tells us what we need to do to get right. You know, God's word lays out for us not the problem alone, but it lays out for us the prescription. It's probably part of the problem the world has. You can go to the world and you will find a lot of descriptions of problems. And in many ways, they are very good at describing the things that are happening in this world. But they are very bad at giving you prescriptions because they don't go deep enough to solving the, the heart issues, the spiritual issues that are behind the struggles that we have. So God's word is Great, it is foundational for doctrine, truth, for rebuke, it, it cuts us, for correction, it tells us how we need to get right, and then training in righteousness, how we need to live in a God-honoring way, how we live as men and women, boys and girls in this world today. So we believe that God's word is sufficient, God's word is eternal, God's word is authoritative, and then God's word is life-giving, and it's life-changing. See, as, as the word goes out, what God does is he takes that word and brings people to life. As you hear the word, whether it's through a teacher or a preacher or maybe in a small group, whatever it is, or you're reading it on your own, what God does is he takes that precious word and he opens blind eyes and he, and he resurrects dead hearts and he opens deaf ears spiritually so that you can hear life and then... And it's life-changing. As you go to the Word, it changes you. So what we've wanted to see in these necessary conversations, whether it was with the life issue, or whether it was with male and female, or, or sexuality, or race, or how we handle substances today, or today how we deal with violence and abuse, these are problems that are out there in the world, but sad to say, they're also problems that are here within the church because we are just saved sinners in a church, right? That if you are here, the hope is that you know Christ, and the hope is that you are growing to become like him. 
but we still have sin, and the topics we talk about this morning are going to be topics that you probably struggle with. So, so I want you to know this, that there is hope and that there's help in the gospel. There is hope and there is help in Christ. There is hope and there is help in the cross. There is hope and there is help in the empty tomb. There is hope and there is help in the resurrected Savior who's seated at the Father's right hand right now. And if you're a believer, he is interceding for you. But we have to be people of truth. So I, I, I wasn't actually sure how to start. There have been hundreds. I've counseled probably thousands, I guess, over the years of people that, that have entered my counseling office and I was just trying to think of a microcosm of somebody that would, that would walk into my office and is struggling in this area of violence and abuse in their lives. And, and the person sits in my office and they, um, they're a victim. And in, as a victim, they, they're looking, there's a look to them. There are gestures that you could see. There is something that I could start to notice. Some people would say it's a sixth sense. I don't believe that. I believe it's, it's discernment. That you could just start to see with eyes that there's something wrong with this person. They just feel, in, they seem like they're intimidated by many people. They tend to put themselves down. They feel humiliated. They're isolated. They tend to minimize things. They, they tend to take the blame for a lot of things that are happening around them. Constantly saying that they're sorry and not really sure why. They, they live in a, such a way that they feel subordinate, but to a, a maladaptive way, a, a, a wrong way, that we are called to be submissive, there is no doubt, but there is something that is just offline in this. This person hasn't really tried to advance in their lives, hasn't really tried to make much of themselves, do much with the gifts and the talents that God has given them. They, they seem to give in to coercions or threats, Oftentimes, sometimes I can remember children of pastors. It's a scary thing for me, to be honest with you, that I'd hope I never would be this. But, but the children of pastors really have to endure quite a lot because they are expected to play a role. And people look at them. And, and they have to play this role regardless of what is happening around because we have to put on our Sunday best. And I can remember over the years counseling tons and tons of children that would watch their father up in a pulpit on a Sunday morning saying certain things, but at home he is living in such a godless way towards their mom or towards them. And it breaks my heart. So, I don't know where you are. I know the home I grew up in. I know that I love my dad, and I don't want to sit here and expose his sin, but the reality is, is I grew up in a home that was messed up. <laughs> and maybe so did you. And there is a pervasiveness with abuse today in our society, there's a pervasiveness with abuse today, sad to say, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to just kind of talk to you a little bit about abuse. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about life before the fall. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. So, so if it is true that there's abuse, and <laughs> there is, um, we don't need the secular world to tell us that. The question is, where did it come from? 
Because if we look in Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. These three words are really at the heart of biblical creation, uh, biblical Christianity. Uh, Beginning, God created. That we, we, we came into being because God, in the very beginning, there was a beginning point of time, God, who's always existed, created us. And so therefore, we are subordinate to him. And, and it's, it's, it's so beautiful as you work through, and we won't take the time to do it, but as you work through Genesis chapter 1, and day 1, he formed the earth and water and light. And day 2, he, he divided the waters and the expanse of heaven. And day 3, he, he put the waters to one place and dry land appeared and vegetation In day four, the the light and the expanse, the sun and the moon and the stars and the signs and the seasons and the days and the years. And, And then day five, he filled the ocean, verse 20, he filled the oceans with living creatures, birds, and and they were blessed by God. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, so it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, so much beautiful, more beautiful than just Big Bang. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like I mean, there was a God who loved you, and oh, man, this is beautiful. And day six, and in verse 24, he says, earth brings forth creatures and animals. And, and then God, in verse 26, did something so amazing. If, if that wasn't amazing enough, he says, let us... The, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let us make man, humanity, in our own image, after the like, our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God breathed into man, he, and we became part of his image. We are, we're relational creatures. Unlike our animals, and many of us in this audience, in this congregation, love animals, and, and animals are so important, but we are not animals. We are, we're greater than that. We, we're relational beings. We, we, we are meaning makers. We, we have a God who's a meaning maker, and he has given you the, the opportunity to be a meaning maker. We're, we're worshipers. We get to worship God. Our cats don't worship the same way as we, we do. We worship God. We worship something else. And we're moral creatures. You put two animals together, and they're going to fight for the food. There is no morality that you should get more, or I want to serve you. There's none of that in the animal world. But that has been wired into you by God. Go back with me to verse 10. At the end of verse 10, God saw that it was what? At the end of verse 12, and God saw that it was? The end of verse 17, actually verse 18, and God saw that it was? Good. If you get the theme going here. The end of verse 21, it says, and God saw that it was good. Good. It was really good. And then at the end of verse 25, he says, and it was good. See, see, God, what God created was good, beautiful, wonderful. Well, what we see today is a marred image of God. We are broken people, and we live in a broken world. And what happened? In Genesis chapter 3, You've heard me preach from this so often, and, and so have Doug and Tim and I, because we believe that this is the foundation of the problems that we have. When God created humanity, God created humanity dependent, dependent upon counsel, and that we will be molded and shaped by the counsel that we listen to. So important. We're dependent. We're not autonomous. We are dependent upon counsel. We need to be taught. Whoever teaches you is going to determine your life. We're dependent. We're dependent upon counsel, and we will be molded and shaped by the counsel that you listen to. Whatever you believe is going to impact how you live, your behaviors. And when Adam and Eve were listening to God, their lives started to look more and more like God. And when they started to listen to another counselor, that is where they went off track. 
In Genesis 3, a new counselor comes in. It's the serpent. And he comes and he's more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he tempted Eve with these three things. He tempted her with the commands of God, the consequences of sin, and the character of God. Those are the three things. He says, you can't trust God's word. You can't trust God's authority, his consequences, that you will not die. And then you can't trust God's character because God is holding out on you. It's the lie that this world has believed since the beginning. It's a lie that causes us the abuses that we have today. We don't believe the word of God. We do not believe the authority of God. And we do not believe the person of God. And as as soon as she believed this lie, what produced was sin in her very heart And then it came out in her actions. She took this fruit. And then she shared this fruit with her husband. And they ate it and immediately separation. Immediately. Shame comes into her life and his life and they cover up in their shame. They run and hide in their fear and they have guilt and they tend to blame. And to be honest, that's the heart of abuse. That in abuse, what do we do? We cover up, we hide, we're not truthful, and we blame. So we talk about these definitions of abuse, physical abuse today. Hitting, slapping, shoving, pinching, biting, hair pulling, whatever it may be, is not appropriate for the people of God. Sexual abuse, and I can't even, because of our mixed audience, I can't even go into some of the rampant ways that sexual abuse has happened in our world. But I will tell you that if you turn on a TV and you will look at the ways that we attack one another in the most intimate way, the most intimate gift that God has given us that a husband and wife can share in We've used it abusively. Emotional abuse. Undermining a person's sense of worth. Diminishing them. Criticizing them. Name-calling. Damaging one's relationship. Economic abuse. Financially holding somebody dependent. Holding control over them. Holding their resources. Forbidding them to even advance themselves with school or economics. I, I don't know how many men I've had in my office who will say, she doesn't need to go to school. She doesn't have to take that class. I forbid her from doing so. Where's this coming from, bud? And in some ways, I wonder if at the heart of it is this issue of control. Psychological, threats, intimidation, physical harm, punching holes in walls, screaming. I'm going to intimidate you whatever way I can. I've had some clients who've destroyed the pets right in front of their partner or their kids. Forcing somebody from isolation of family and friends. You can't talk to your family members. And the problem is that as I read some of those things, perhaps some of those are things that you've experienced. Maybe those are some of the things that you've done. Chris Moles wrote a book called The Heart of Violence, Domestic Violence from a Christian Perspective. It's a really good book. And he talked in the book about some past approaches that just don't work. So I want you to consider these. He says that one of the things that we tend to do as a church in reacting to abuse is that we believe it's a justice or a legal problem. We take our hands off of it and we say it's a legal problem, turn it over to the police officers. And what he said was this, that in this viewpoint, violence in the home is criminal and primarily the responsibility of law enforcement and courts. Therefore, abusive men must be incarcerated. There is absolutely no doubt to violate somebody physically is absolutely wrong. 
And as a leader, if we are put into a position and if somebody had done that, they need to be held accountable to the legal system that is out there. Don't misunderstand me. But the answer to the problem is not legal. Because you put a person in our justice system, they don't come out less violent, they come out more violent oftentimes. So it can't be the answer. Some in the church believe that abuse is an anger problem. It's the first thing. So we need to put this person in anger management. You know that from the court systems that are out there. The court systems will say that you will have to go through a 32-week anger management program. I have oftentimes gotten men who have been assigned to me to give them counsel for their anger problem. And that violence is the result of anger and therefore we must address the anger and their anger cues. The dilemma with this is this, that the anger in and of itself is not the central issue. The anger is the fruit of the central issue. It's the way they get what they want. So helping a person deal with their anger alone, if you don't deal with the deeper issue, doesn't solve anything, doesn't change anything. And oftentimes in the anger situations, what we have a tendency to do is we tend to focus on the fact that if she would do something differently or if my kids would do something differently, I wouldn't get so angry. So we shift the blame. And it doesn't change the heart of this person. The third approach that is wrong, justice or legal approach, anger approach, the third approach which doesn't work is the marriage problem. This is a marriage problem. That, that the reason why this man abuses his wife or abuses his kids, and I'm using man here for this reason. I have had in 27 years of counseling some women that have abused their husbands. Some. I'd say 10%. The vast majority of those that are acting in abusive ways in the homes tend to be the men. Now, I've had a number of women that have been abusive to their children or maybe to elderly family members, but primarily in the home when it comes down to the wife and the kids, it's the man that's doing it. So I'm speaking to you men today. And the counseling that would be given today that this is a marriage problem gives the sense that the wife is responsible for the way that you've treated your wives or kids, and that's a lie right from hell. It's shifting blame. So, so a kid acts disrespectfully to his parent because he has been active, actively abused by his parent Yes, the kid is wrong. I'm not minimizing his sin, but is it not possible that that is a reaction to my sin as the leader? And so in marriage, to say that the wife's response, which she is going to be held responsible for, don't misunderstand me, and it is still sin, but if her reaction is to my sinful actions to her, it's not a marriage problem, it's a me problem. Or it's a you problem if you're in that position. And to attack this, that this is, takes two to tango, and that we need to do biblical counseling, biblical marriage counseling, not yet. It's not a legal problem. It's not an anger problem. It's not a marriage problem. It's not a wife problem. There are some churches, sad to say, I can't believe this. There are some churches that teach that it is the wife's fault for the way the husband acts. So if you were more submissive... He wouldn't do these things. If you, if you made yourself look nice when he came home and you made him a nice dinner and you cleaned the house and if and if and if and the reason why he yells at you and screams at the kids is because of you. And then we'll take verses and pervert them. It sickens me. The reality is it's not a justice or a legal problem. It's not an anger problem. It's not a marriage problem. It's not a wife problem. It's a heart problem. See, the problem with Adam and Eve is that their hearts changed. They stopped listening to God and trusting God and finding God as their satisfaction and security 
And they started to trust themselves and listen to other counsel. And they changed. This problem of abuse, whether it's any of those types that I gave you earlier, is so prevalent today. One in four women will be assaulted by their intimate partner. Children are growing up in homes where they're suffering um, these different types of abuse in, in rampant ways. I want to talk to you today about the heart of why abuse occurs, and then I want to give you the prescription. That's all I can probably get to today. So turn with me to First John chapter 2. I didn't get to this passage last week, but this really is at the heart of some of the same issues. First John chapter 2. And I want you to look at verses 15 and following. It says, do not love this world or the things that are in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I want you to know, men, that if we've acted in these ways, it doesn't mean that we're not a believer, but we're not displaying the love of God, the love of the Father, if we do it. I do know this, that over 27 years of counseling, I have had almost the majority of people enter my office and say that they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a Christian counseling practice. I will say this, that there are three different types of people that sit in my office. The first one is this, a non-believer. They have made a profession of faith, but they do not possess faith. And in this lack of possessing of faith, they are not going to live a godly way because they can't live godly because they do not have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're dead spiritually. And they may have made a profession of faith years ago, but a prayer does not bring salvation. It's a repentant heart. It's a change. It's a resurrection that has to happen. So there are people that sit in my office that are not believers, though they think they are. There's some that sit in my office that are absolutely arrogant and rebellious. They know the truth, and they say, I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. In all likelihood, they may not believe be believers either, even though they're professing it. There's a third group of people that sit in my office that are probably um, ignorant. They just don't know. Maybe they grew up in a church that has taught them the wrong way of leadership, the wrong way of parenting. They just don't know. And so what I want to try to do is to be as gracious as I possibly can. I want to be as kind. I want to be charitable in my judgments. I'm not God. But maybe the love of the Father is not in them because they're not a believer. Verse 16, for all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's of the world. In this world, it's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And, and so what he says here is that there are three things, if you saw them, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh are for your comfort. Sometimes we act in abusive ways, neglectful ways, because we want something to please us, to comfort us. It's part of the reason why people go to substances or whatever it is, I want comfort. Desires of the eyes, I see something that I need. I need that thing to make me happy. It's the, very, it's the 10th commandment, you remember? You shall not covet. And so what we do, whether it's lust or substances or other people or control, what we do is we look in our lives and say, I need that to make me happy more than Christ. So the desires of the flesh, comfort, the desires of the eyes, coveting, the pride of life, control. So what's at the heart of abuse? It's at the heart of all idolatry. 
I want. I want. See, when we long for something to secure us and to satisfy us other than Christ, it will leave you hungry, it will leave you lonely, and it will enslave you. Any of the things that we've been talking about that you are going after other than Christ will leave you hungry. It will not satisfy you. Another dab, another line of coke, another time in bed with somebody else will not satisfy you because only Christ can. It will leave you hungry. It will leave you lonely because you will go after your idol and you will forget about love of God and love of everybody else. It will leave you lonely and it will enslave you. You think it's setting you free? It won't. It can't. And this idolatrous heart of comfort and covenant and control is really at the heart of all these things, but specifically of abuse. It is about pride and it's about control. Flip back with me to flip back with me to James chapter four. James chapter four. James in chapter four, he's he's talking here about worldliness, but he it's conflict, and he and he says in James chapter four, verse one, what what causes quarrels and, and fights among you? It's interesting that he says, the quarrels and fights among you. See, now if he stopped there, it would almost give the impression that it's my wife or my kids that are making me angry. It's it's these things that are happening among me. But watch, he cuts you right here. What causes the fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions, James, are at war within you? There is absolutely no doubt that people can influence me, but they do not determine me. Chris Moles uses this line with his guys, which I I love. He says, we do what we do because we want what we want. Say it again. We do what we do because we want what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. Fights and quarrels that are happening around me are because of the desires, the passions that are at war within me. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cut. It's interesting that James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably is reminding himself of the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus said, you think you're a murderer, you're not a murderer because you haven't pulled a trigger. Well, Jesus didn't say that, but... um, James Long's commentary. Um, You think you're a murderer because you have not killed somebody, but if you have anger and bitterness in your heart, you're a murderer. I think that's what James is getting at. The heart of abuse. I murder this person. You desire and do not have, so you murder, and then you covet, heard that, and cannot obtain. I see it. I want it. I need it. I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. So you may even pray and it's like, God, change her, God. I need her to give this to me, God. I need these kids to be different, God. But I'm not praying to reverence God or to honor these people around. I'm praying about me. Selfishness. And not God's not going to hear that. In 1 Peter, it's interesting that our men, men, maybe your prayers have been hindered because of the way you've been treating your wife and kids. 1 Peter chapter 3. That's scary. That if I act in such a godless way to my wife and to my kids, God says, I'm not going to hear your prayer, James. So there's a spiritual impact. Do you see it? I'm hungry, I'm lonely, I'm enslaved, and now spiritually I've been impacted. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on what? Your own passions. I'm trying to get God to answer my idol. See, I've tried to get my wife to answer my idol. Now I'm trying to get my children to answer my idol, and I'm even trying to get God to answer my idol. It's the heart of control. 
you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you so not suppose? It is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, that God, not in a sinful way of jealousy, he knows he's our best, and he wants to be that for you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to provide the ultimate satisfaction for you. And he knows that when you go after those lesser things, you will not be satisfied and secured. He learns, he yearns jealously over you, over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But, oh, here's the line, but he gives what? More what? Grace. So God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is not a justice problem. It's not an anger problem. It's not a marriage problem. It's not a wife problem. It's a heart problem. The heart problem is pride and control. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of hope. It's wanting something other than God, loving God and loving others. God hates abuse. In Psalm 11, Verse 5, it says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 say this, These six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, which is oftentimes an abuse, hands that shed innocent blood. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it says, Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does not do the things to his, uh, does any of these things to his brother. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He, he oppresses the poor and the needy. He commits robbery. He does not live in a godly way. And all of these things he committed are an abomination to God. Or in Romans chapter 3, Verses 14 through 17, it says this, whose mouth is full of curses and bitterness. His feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God hates abuse. It is not for the people of God. But the beauty of James chapter 4, verse 6 is, but God gives grace. Look back at James chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you, you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, you do not, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Ooh, that hurts. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be every disorder and vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is, first of all, pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. If there's a section of scripture that we need to memorize and meditate and model, ooh, three M's, memorize, meditate, model, it's this, that I want to be pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruit and partial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness will be sown. So much I could go into this topic 
I think that uh, we have a major problem in our churches. Well, why don't we say this? I think there's a major problem in the world in this regard of submission. I believe, no, the Bible teaches submission is biblical. I've had women sit in my office and as soon as they call it the S word comes up, I'm not counseling with you if you believe in the S word. I believe in the S word. (laughs) I guess I'm not counseling with you. But let me tell you that I think the belief that you have in the S word submission is not the biblical belief of submission. The Lord Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father's will and came here for you. And he's sitting there on the night that he was betrayed, bleeding from his, fa- from his head. Lord, if there's another way, please, and, but not my will, let your will be done. So submission is biblical. The problem is, is that what we've been defining as submission is not. And what we've been displaying in churches is not. See, we tend to believe that submission is power over my wife and power over my children and power over, like as a pastor, I'm power over you. It's not biblical submission. There is no doubt that I exercise power in some ways over you. But I hope that it's not power over, it's power under See, as Tim, Doug, myself, the rest of the elders, what we want to do is the power that God has given us and the authority he's given us is to lift you up. Servant leadership. See, it's modeled if you take a chance of reading John chapter 13. The very night that Jesus was betrayed, the King of kings and the Lord of lords put a towel around his waist. He got a bowl, and he washed the disciples' feet. See, that's leadership. You remember John and his brother had come, well, actually his mother, their mother had come to Jesus and said, I, I want you to give my son on the right hand and my other son on your left hand. And Jesus says, you, you've missed, you missed it. Authority and power is not about this. It's about serving. For the Lord did not come here to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What would our marriages look like? And what would our homes look like if the men in this congregation submitted themselves to the Father and to the Son and the Spirit became men of the word. We're filling up our men's Bible studies. We're here tonight at Psalms. We're at, eight, uh, at adult Bible studies, not filling up with women, but filling up with the men of this church, putting yourself under God's word, hearing God's word so that you can meditate on it, memorize it, and then model it. Our teenagers that are sitting here, you are going to become husbands. You're going to become fathers. Put yourself under the word so that you can learn. And maybe you grew up in a home that your dad didn't model this. That's okay. Ezekiel 18 says you could have had a really bad father, but you could be a really godly person. You choose. Moles gave this last illustration, and I'll bring this to a close. He talked about a cheerleader. I like the illustration of the Paris skater, so I'm going to put them both together. These cheerleaders, you know, oftentimes they, um, you get a male cheerleader and he looks like a big V, right? Big arms, big upper chest. And and what this male cheerleader does is he, he will hold this young lady up with one hand. I mean, it's like just amazing. He's just sitting there like that. You've probably seen it in paraskating. I used to watch paraskating a lot. And they would, on this little blade, these two little blades, he would hold up this woman so gracefully. And as he's holding her up, and then he brings her down gently. And cheerleading, as Moles gives the illustration, what does he do? He lifts her up, and then he pushes her up in the air. And she's doing all these somersaults and these flips. 
And she is absolutely confident that the man underneath her is going to catch her. And she feels a level of safety. She feels a level of security. She feels a level of protection. She feels a level of gentleness. She feels a level of value. The pair is skating, bringing her back so beautifully. What would happen if we acted like that as men? With our wives, with our kids, because they are of infinite value. So let me bring this home. I want you to know that the gospel is there. We are called to be servant leaders, and the gospel will forgive you and free you. If you are a person who has committed evil, you are forgiven and free if you're in Christ. You can be redeemed and restored in Christ, and there is hope and help in the gospel. You may have been this power over person, but you can become a power under person. You could choose today. For those of you that are sitting in our congregation and have been abused, I want you to recognize you're not alone. So interesting on this point. People are constantly lying to me when they come into my office. (laughs) The abusers lie because they don't want to tell you the truth of what they've done. And the abused person lies because they're afraid they've got to go home with this person. So if you've been in abuse, I need you to reach out to someone for help. Sometimes we need to get the police involved. But police are not going to transform a human heart. I've had some women who have chosen not to get medical help for their injuries because a report will come out. Don't do that, please. Please. And sit down with somebody, a good counselor, a good mentor that will help you to develop a plan for safety. Get the evidence that you need. Submit yourself to a wise counselor. Put yourself in our church body. We're here to help you. As a church, we should prioritize the protection of children and victims. Sad to say there are a lot of churches today that have not done that. We as church leaders need to recognize our own humility. There is not an elder in this church that is a perfect man. There's not an elder in this church that has been a perfect husband or a perfect father. There isn't. And we don't have all the answers, but we need help. We need to, as a church, recognize that there are abused people, but then there are also abusers, and we should bring the gospel to both. If you're an abuser, I I need you to recognize that you need to come up with some very concrete goals. You need to get help. Now. Accountability is needed. You cannot do this on your own. The problem with domestic violence is it is a pervasive pattern in people's lives of coercive control that does not get uprooted without help. You need to be honest and acknowledge your sin, and it is sin. And when we acknowledge our sin, we don't do what our first Adam did, that it's her fault and your fault, God. Now it's mine. You need to... You need to address the heart. It's not about my wife or my kids or the home I grew up and that I grew up in. It's about me. I own it. You need to genuinely repent, confess. Second Corinthians seven. I don't have time to go through it today, but it talks about in verses ten and eleven. It talks about godly grief versus worldly grief. Godly grief will produce an earnestness over this sin. I hate it. It will vindicate myself, not to make myself look better, but to clear myself. No more lying, no more hiding. I'm, I am washed clean by telling you the truth. The indignation is not over other people's sin. It's about my anger at my own sin. The fear of standing before God and having to give an account. This fear of having to stand before my elders and have to give an account. The longing, this deep desire for an intimate fellowship with God and a better relationship with others. 
the zeal that it should be in our lives should all be a byproduct of that. And then you need to develop a plan for action, a plan for change. I want to help you, and these leaders want to help you. So whatever these necessary issues have been, these necessary conversations, there are biblical answers, and we want to help. We don't want to just preach it to you. We as an elder and leadership team want to be there to help, but we cannot help unless you look for it. So I'll end with this. I heard it being played yes, uh, earlier today in, our, in the Northex. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood, This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Now as daylight flees, now as ground beneath, quakes as the maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finished is his victory cry. Oh, to see my name written in your wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. Oh, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath, and we stand forgiven. Oh, Lord. At the cross. Lord, I thank you. Oh, Lord. Ah. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Lord, over this series of messages, we have been dealing with things that have probably cut some of our congregation and they recognize that they have done some of these things. And, and Lord, I pray that each one of us, I believe we have, have brought them, not exposing the problem only, we have exposed the, the answer, the prescription to that problem. It's Christ. It's his cross. It's his finished work. That we are forgiven and we're free. We are rescued and we're restored. We have hope and we have help. Father, help us to reach out for that help to you first and to others. In Jesus' name, amen.